Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the Projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> By the majesty of the Dark Ones, this continuing storm is a most confounding enigma. I have poured over the likes of such grimoires as the Swan Book of Horrors, the Galabrock, the Black Pullet, the Necronomicon, as well as the Legionnaire's Ledger, and even the Book of Sins. And everyone has presented a dead end in regards to how to cease this never ending deluge of heavy rain. If this keeps up, I fear that the vault itself will be lost to flooding. Is that you, Rockford J? Report at once. Sorry, projectionist. This is Vic. The situation is pretty bad down here, man. A massive leak has taken place on levels 22 and 21. Water is just pouring in. Rockford has taken clay and steel down there along with about a dozen volunteers to try and get some pumps working to stop the flooding. At the moment, they have a sort of bucket brigade set up. That makes no sense at all, Sage. The plague rats used my designs when they built this new vault in secret under the haunted drive-in. The materials and incantations used should protect it from such dangers as flooding. Oh, really? Yeah, to say nothing of those plague rats creating a labyrinth of honeycomb tunnels underneath the vault. I suppose the only bright side in all of this is if the plague rats are in hiding down there as I fear. Blast it all, Victor. I really will not listen to another one of your baseless theories on how Bobby Joe and his plague rat kin are behind this recent, and I will admit, peculiar events. Then we will just agree to disagree on this, my friend. However, as I was saying, if they are hiding out in the lowest levels of the vault, they won't be a concern any longer. I somehow doubt they can breathe underwater, right? You would be surprised what dark magic can accomplish. What was that, projectionist? I couldn't hear you over all this water. Nothing for you to worry about, dear boy. Come, join me in the office immediately. The recording light is illuminated on the control panel. I'm on my way. Well now, dear listeners, I bid you welcome back for another Saturday Frights radio broadcast. The storm that has plagued the haunted drive-in continues unabated, causing all manner of concerns here. A majority of the staff have been unable to return to their homes as the rains seem intent on washing Haddonfield off the map. 
Hey there, friends. Give me just a second to dry off. Once again, we've been unable to screen Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds due to this infernal weather. So, my co-host thought it might be a capital idea to devote this particular radio broadcast to the five horror pictures, the creme de la creme, as they were, for 2020. In truth, friends, we probably should have tackled this on episode 88 of the podcast, instead of the top five Tales from the Dark Side episodes. But, on the other hand, we are still in the early stages of 2020, so I'm pretty sure you won't mind we take a look back at our top five favorite horror films that were released last year. This would not be the first time you were late on a subject matter, Victor. Or failed to keep the weekly schedule. Yeah, yeah. Now, there were certainly more than five great horror movies released in 2020, so we'll mention some runner-ups after we have finished sharing our list. In addition, we are going to try to keep with a brief synopsis on the top five. The best of luck with that, Sage. (laughs) Perhaps I should just let you handle this episode, Projectionist. I know that Rockford and our fellow employees would be glad for me to go back down and help out with the flooding issue. Nonsense. I'm just pulling your leg a little. You need to develop a thicker skin. This is why those negative comments on our radio broadcast affect you so. Anyway, we will be providing a brief synopsis on each of the five films, as well as what we thought made them stand out from the rest of the horror movies of 2020. I think we should get the ball rolling, man. Why don't you take the honors of letting the listeners know which film took the number five spot on our list? It would be my honor, dear boy. Our fifth favorite horror picture for 2020 is Underwater. Listen carefully. You are now 5,000 miles from land, and you're descending seven miles to the bottom of the ocean. See you all in a month. Here we go. Underwater is a horror science fiction film that was directed by William Eubank and stars the likes of Vincent Cassel, Kristen Stewart, T.J. Miller, Mamadou Ake, and Jessica Henwick, released in theaters back on January 10th of 2020. You might know Eubank for his 2014 science fiction picture, The Signal, which he not only directed but co-wrote with his brother, Carlisle Eubank, and David Frigorio. Kristen Stewart might be best known for her roles in Zathura, A Space Adventure, as well as Bella Swan in the five pictures that make up the Twilight Saga. Oh, yes. The sparkling vampire series of films. What an imaginative view of the legendary creatures of the night. Yes. (laughs) Be nice, projectionist. You may not care for the films, but they were quite popular and profitable to boot. Looking online, though, I'm sad to say that it appears Underwater was not successful. On a budget ranging from $50 to $80 it took in only a little over $40 Although, I think in the coming years, we are going to see the film gain a cult status. And, after I was able to catch it on streaming, I have to admit I felt very bad about not seeing it in theaters. The bad reviews kind of drove me away. Bah, critics. Jackie Gleason said it best. 
critics have the roadmaps, but they have no inkling of how to drive the bus. You've said that before, my friend. Are you sure that it was Jackie Gleason who said that? Because I've never been able to find any definitive proof online about such a statement. Of course I am sure that it was Jackie Gleason who said it, Victor. He was known at that time for playing Ralph Cramden on the Honeymooners episodic television series. Yes? Sure. And in the Honeymooners, Ralph Crampton's profession was a bus driver, after all. Okay, I'm just saying, I've not found anything online to back that up. Anyway, Underwater is about a deep-sea drilling station for TN Industries called Kepler-822, which is the command center for the Roebuck Drill and Research Station, and is positioned above the Mariana Trench. As we are introduced to Noah Price, played by Stewart, an unexpected and massive earthquake strikes the station. On her mad dash through the collapsing station, Price cries out to her fellow crewmen in their rooms to head for the escape pods. The destruction is so quick and violent, though, dear listeners, that Noah Price and only one other crew member named Rodrigo Magdena are able to get further into the station. They're even forced to make the hard decision to shut the emergency doors and condemn others to a horrible death. Well, because if they didn't seal the doors, the whole station would have been crushed like an egg projectionist. The filmmakers do a great job of showing how quickly the station begins to fall apart. By the way, Rodrigo is played by Ake. I want to point out that Stuart really makes you believe her decision to close the emergency hatches on a pair of pleading crew members is not an easy one. In fact, I think she really does a lot with her character, who is a mechanical engineer. She is earnest and maybe a tad naive, but very much like Sigourney Weaver's character of Ellen Ripley in Ridley Scott's Alien. There's just something about her that is likable, and she has an incredible determination even when the chips are down. Price and Rodrigo continue to head towards the escape pods, coming across another crew member named Paul, played by T.J. Miller, trapped in some of the rubble of the station. And after freeing him, the trio make their way through the remains of that section of Kepler-822 by crawling through the rubble and collapsing tunnels to reach the pod bay. Underwater does a remarkable job just a mere 15 minutes into the film of driving home the reality of how dangerous the predicament is for Noah Price and the surviving crew members. Stranded seven miles below the ocean's surface with the station systems failing all around them. Agreed, projectionist. The trio might have reached the escape pod bay, but all of the pods have been launched. Although, it turns out that they are not the only ones to have missed the boat, so to speak. Captain Lucian, played by Westworld's Vincent Cassil, directs them towards a control center further within the station, where they meet up with two additional survivors of the mysterious earthquake. Emily Haversham, who's played by Iron Fist's Jessica Henwick, and Liam Smith, who's portrayed by John Gallagher Jr., who you might know best from his role in the 2016 sleeper hit, Ten Cloverfield Lane. The hope for the crew members of the Kepler-822 was, once at the control center, they might be able to radio the surface for help. When that fails, Captain Lucian suggests another option, one that is extremely dangerous. Yeah. 
Yes, that they don their pressurized suits and walk a mile upon the ocean floor in an attempt to reach the Roebuck Station, an older area of the station, as the escape pods there should not have been jettisoned. Rodrigo Nagdana finds out the hard way that the crushing depths of the ocean is not the time to realize your diving suit hasn't pressurized properly. Much to the horror of his fellow crew members when he explodes. <laughs> Projectionists, stop right there. Don't spoil the movie for those that haven't seen it yet. Before the six survivors... You mean five survivors, uh, yes, you are correct. <sighs> Before the five remaining survivors are able to truly begin their trek to Roebuck Station 641, they happen to notice that one of the escape pods from the Kepler has its distress beacon engaged. Instead of rising to the surface, it has landed on the platform connected to the station below them. Captain Lucian obviously sees the need to investigate, sending out Paul and Liam, but when they get there, though, the pod has been torn open, and almost immediately, the surviving crew of Kepler-822 realize they are far from being alone on the bottom of the ocean floor. Dear listeners, if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice throughout the film that the filmmakers clue you into the horrors awaiting Noah Price and her fellow survivors. In particular, the surprise literary connection to the works of Hey, hey, projectionist, don't say another word. Thankfully, changing the subject, the entire cast of Underwater really play off each other. You totally buy into the fact that these people have been working together for a bit. And there is a lot of gallows humor, provided mostly through T.J. Miller's character of Paul. In addition, as my co-host has already touched upon, Underwater is quite intense to say the least. These characters really are in dire straits, from failing equipment, like the futuristic diving suits they wear, to other dangers, such as not everything is as it seems with TN Industries. By the end of the film, I will say they left it wide open for sequels, but I sadly doubt that will come to pass with Underwater's box office performance. That is quite the shame, Serge. I totally agree. From what I understand, the film was ready to be released in 2018. The release date was delayed, however, as 20th Century Fox was in talks with Disney to purchase the company. In fact, this was the last movie to be released to theaters under 20th Century Fox, as just seven days later, Disney would change the name to 20th Century Fox Studios. So, if you enjoy films like Deep Star 6, Leviathan, or even Alien, definitely take the time to check out Underwater. Moving on with our top 5 horror movies of 2020, going from a vast underwater setting to a small television studio. Coming in at number 4, we have a Shudder exclusive, Damien Levesque's The Cleansing Hour. Projectionist, if you will do the honors. Naturally. Follow monitors, let me lead. Alright everybody, here we go. Three, two. Time to go off script. Let us see if we can shorten the synopsis, Victor. Were you aware the cleansing hour is in fact a full-length film based upon an earlier short by Damien Levesque? 
I did know that projectionist. In addition, Damien co-wrote both the short and screenplay for the film with Aaron Horowitz, who is credited with the story idea for the original short film. In fact, I was aware of the film listeners thanks to a review I read by Bloody Disgusting's Megan Navarro. And that was for when she caught it at the September 19th, 2019 premiere at Fantastic Fest. Then why did we vote on this picture for the top five of 2020, Serge? Because it was picked up and distributed by Shutter's streaming service in 2020. Although I'm happy to say that it is available on Blu-ray now. I just saw it last week when I popped into the local Walmart to grab some groceries. By the way, I feel it's safe to say that Navarro didn't care for the film as much as we did, stating in her review, quote, The Cleansing Hour is a dark movie. By that, I mean that the web series set is so darkly lit, it's not always easy to see what's happening. Considering there's a lot of not-so-great digital effects that come into play, that you have to squint to see what's on screen sometimes is probably a good thing. But there's an equal amount of great practical effects work, too. Courtesy of Tom Woodruff Jr.'s Amalgamated Dynamics Special Makeup Effects Studio. When the movie leans into the practical, it pops. End quote. At the end of the day, she gave it only two skulls out of five. I'll be sure to include a link, of course, to her full review. It's definitely worth your time to check out. Personally, I didn't have any problems with the CGI effects. But in 90 episodes of the podcast... Or if you count the matinee bonus content, dear boy... That is true. As I was saying, though, I have constantly shown that I'm not a critic. I suppose I simply want to be entertained, and that is exactly what The Cleansing Hour did. In spades. The plot of the film concerns two best friends. Max, who is played by 911's Ryan Guzman, and Drew, portrayed by the haunting in Connecticut's Kyle Gallner. This duo have dreamed up an online reality show called The Cleansing Hour. One that supposedly finds Father Max bravely facing off against demonic forces on every show. Father Max is able to successfully perform exorcisms, as well as selling a great deal of merchandise, such as prayer cloths and vials of holy water. Approved, so his website boasts, by the Vatican itself. It probably won't shock you to learn that what Max and Drew are doing is a hoax. Drew takes care of things behind the scenes, like the digital services, interacting with the live commentary, as well as the merchandising that the projectionist just mentioned. Max and Drew have been friends since childhood, a bond strengthened by a rather nightmarish upbringing in a Catholic school of their youth. Thanks to the crew who handle special effects and the like, Max is a minor celebrity, and everyone is making a bit of money. But Max and Drew obviously want the cleansing hour to grow. Max feels that the best way to increase viewership is to keep with what they're doing, but Drew strongly believes they need to focus on more than just exorcisms, branch out into ghost hunting and the like. Even Lane, who is Drew's fiancé, and played by the Magnificent Sevens, Alex Angelus, sees the wisdom in Drew wanting to change up the show's format. Since Max is the star of the show, however, he sort of bullies Drew into sticking with the usual plan. But when the intended actor fails to show up, to be murdered by those loyal to the power of projectionist? Spoilers! With seven minutes until time for the show to air, and with no one to play the possessed, Lane begrudgingly steps up to portray the victim. It would seem, however, that something dark and of great power has taken notice of Father Max and his little show, and is going to make everyone involved pay for their hoax, forcing Max and Drew and others to reveal 
reveal the deceptions and darkest secrets for the viewing audience. Yeah, as the camera begins to roll, it is quickly revealed to the horror of those in the studio that Lane is in fact possessed by some demonic force. And I think we really need to point out that Alex Angelis doesn't hold anything back in her performance. It's fantastic, and also looks to be physically draining. And, for what it's worth, any attempt to stop the broadcast will result in the evil entity killing Lane in the process. The demon is quick to demonstrate its power by slaying the Cleansing Hour special effects technician. With a glance, the man erupts into flames and dies in agony. So, in closing out the synopsis for the Cleansing Hour, the result of the ensuing carnage is the viewership numbers continue to grow as Max tries to save face from the tasks that the possessed Lane forces him to endure. All the while, Drew is attempting to actually figure out which demon they are dealing with. You see, Max did in fact attempt to become a priest. He had an honest-to-goodness calling, but was disillusioned by the priesthood. Throw in the fact that Max and Drew have a literal ticking clock working against him in an attempt to figure out what kind of game the entity is playing. I think we should point out that Lane, Drew, and Max are far from angels. But you definitely will feel for them during the movie, especially Lane and Drew. Max is played by Ryan Guzman, most assuredly has a roguish charm. I agree. Max isn't a black-hearted villain by any means, even factoring in the fact he's playing on the faith of people to get money and inflate his ego. The way he acts when all is revealed is at least sort of understandable. And obviously, you will root for both Drew and Max against the evil force they are facing. Gooseman and Galner effortlessly sell that these are two men who have been friends for pretty much their entire lives. The cleansing hour is dripping with black comedy. This plays out more and more as the film races to its conclusion. I would also say that Levesque and Horwitz are taking a good-natured jab at the all-consuming aspects of social media these days. Having said all of that, it is still a horror film, with all manner of gruesome effects and surprises before the credits roll. Which brings us to the feature film that has garnered our number three spot in the top five horror films of 2020. The latest adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1897 science fiction horror story, The Invisible Man. He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then I was controlling when I left the house and eventually what I thought. I'm sure that many of you have already had the pleasure of seeing Blumhouse's take on the classic story by Wells. Before we dive in any further though, I think I should point out that one of us was dead set against watching it. Isn't that right, projectionist? That is quite true, dear listeners. However, I was able to convince Victor to keep an open mind and give the picture a chance. Oh, whatever. I remember you saying something like, why would they attempt to top the perfection of James Wells' 1933 picture? Pshaw, you were making far too much of what I actually said in getting off subject. As usual. Uh-huh. Okay. Friends, you might be interested to know that talks on beginning a new adaptation of The Invisible Man began all the way back in 2006. 
I'm going to assume that it had something to do with Universal's modest success with 2004's Van Helsing. I would be willing to bet it was intended as a straight-to-DVD release, too. Fast forward 10 years later, and it was announced that Johnny Depp was going to star in a big-budget remake as part of the Dark Universe. The shared cinematic universe started by Alex Kurtzman with 2017's The Mummy. Ah, yes. The critically panned and commercial flop that was even worse than the action horror comedy of the same name from 1999. Projectionist, first of all, you are so wrong about so many things. I know you were trying to get a rise out of me. Summer's mummy films are still a whole lot of fun. And while I will admit I am in the minority about 2017's The Mummy, I will point out that on a budget of 125 to 195 million dollars, it managed to earn 410 million dollars. So it wasn't a flop, except in the court of public opinion. Having said that, though, it is hard to argue that Lee Wanell's 2020 version of The Invisible Man didn't do far, far better. It has been reported that the movie cost seven million dollars to produce and ended up raking in 143 million dollars. Not a bad return, right? Winnell should be very familiar to anyone who listens to our podcast, Projectionist. Having written the screenplays for the likes of the first three Saw films, Dead Silence, and Insidious, to name a few. And it has been announced he's working on both a new Wolfman film and a remake of John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Remake after remake after remake, Victor. Are there no original ideas left in Hollywood? You seem to enjoy The Invisible Man well enough for all your belly aching. The funny thing is that Lee had no intention of making the movie. I found a very interesting interview with the director and Fred Topol of the showbiz Chi-Chi, where, when he was brought in to meet with both Universal and Blumhouse, a talk he assumed was about his 2018 sci-fi action thriller Upgrade, it turns out they wanted to know how he would approach making a remake of The Invisible Man. I'll be sure to include a link to the interview, because it's pretty funny. But, to cut to the chase, he just mentioned he would reverse the focus of the film to be on that of a victim instead of the mad scientist. It turns out that line of thinking bowled over those in the meeting, and he got the offer. Furthermore, he felt that it was high time to focus on the monster aspects of the Universal Monsters once again, stating, quote, My daughter watches animated movies with these animated characters in them, Winnell said. That's how safe they've become. My thought was we can drag it kicking and screaming into our era and make it scary in the way the originals were. I could immediately see an opportunity to modernize it, just when someone mentioned that title to me and kind of put me on the spot, end quote. I think you agree, Projectionist, that just looking at the box office take on the film, a lot of people agree with Lee's line of thinking. I suppose so, Sage. Besides directing it, Lee also wrote the screenplay. It stars the incredibly talented Elizabeth Moss, who might be best known for Mad Men and The Handmaid's Tale. Do not forget that Elizabeth Moss was also featured in Us, the 2019 picture by Jordan Peele. That is true. Moss plays Cecilia Cass, a woman who is in a horribly abusive relationship both physically as well as mentally, with Adrian Griffin, played by The Haunting of Hill House, and Bly Manor's Oliver Jackson Cohen, a scientist whose field of research is that of optics. To be honest, we were kind of thrust into this nightmarish situation that Cass has found herself in, right from the get-go of The Invisible Man. And make no mistake about it, the poor woman is in serious need of help. 
which he receives by way of his sister, Emily Cass, who is played by Harriet Dyer. It turns out that Emily has agreed to pick up her sister in the middle of the night. That is, after Cecilia has drugged Adrian. The situation is truly so bad that she has to attempt to knock him out so she can actually leave him in his high-tech house slash research lab, which is basically a prison for Cecilia. The plan works, and Cecilia is making good her escape. That is when the family dog follows her into the garage and throws a wrench into Cecilia, Cass's attempt at fleeing the abuse of Adrian Griffin. It is quite evident the pooch favors the young woman over its master, but she can't leave with him after all, although she does take a few seconds to take off the shock collar on the animal. Yeah, but the dog then bumps into Adrian's car, which triggers the car alarm, waking up the slumbering sociopath. Cecilia is able to flee and get into Emily's car just in time for her sister to see Adrian race down the driveway screaming with rage up to the passenger window, punching through it in an attempt to grab at the obviously terrified Cecilia before Emily wisely slams her foot on the gas and drives off. Unbeknownst to Cecilia, Cass, however, in her rush to get into her sister's vehicle, she dropped the vial of diazepam, the drug she used to attempt to render Adrian Griffin unconscious, which the enraged man happens to find. The film jumps to two weeks later, and while it is true that Cecilia is free from Adrian's bodily and mental harm, she is basically holed up in her best friend's house. Detective James Lanier and his teenage daughter, Sydney, played by Hidden Figures, Aldous Hodge, and Euphoria's Storm Reed. Cecilia is definitely considered to be one of the family members, but she's kind of living in abject terror that Adrian is going to somehow track her down and either force her back or worse. Which is why the young woman panics when her sister shows up with some very important information. Winnell and Moss do a great job of giving us an amazing amount of information without it falling into an exposition dump. Moss obviously deserves all of the praise she received from critics for her performance. Emily, as it turns out, has broken her sworn-upon vow to not contact Cecilia, just in case Adrian would use his vast finances and resources to have her followed. But she needs to let her sister know, apparently, the man was so affected by Cecilia's leaving him that he killed himself. There is quite a bigger shock, however, in store for Cecilia Cass. Adrian Griffin has decided to leave his fortune of five million dollars to her. Something that he tasks his brother Tom Griffin, who is a lawyer, to handle. Tom is played by Daybreaker's Michael Dorman. And it's very plain to see, no pun intended since we're talking about the Invisible Man, that he harbors a lot of anger towards Cecilia. I suppose we can sort of understand, considering his brother had committed suicide. But in his eyes, the woman's only goal was to get close to Adrian in an attempt to get his fortune. There's some fine print on Cecilia receiving the money, but she doesn't want it. Although, she does agree in an effort to set up a college fund for Sydney as well as help James. Things are not so cut and dried, however, dear listeners. 
This is, after all, a horror picture, yes? Exactly. Cecilia should be quite relieved that Adrian can no longer harm her. But then why can't she shake the feeling that at night, when she is alone, that she is not just being watched, but stalked? As it turns out, the true terror is just beginning. That is enough for the synopsis, I think. Just in case you've not seen The Invisible Man yet. It is just a fantastic and prime example, in my opinion, of how you can do a remake of a film and yet make it entirely fresh. Projectionist. Off the top of my head, the likes of 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers or 1982's The Thing are prime examples of what I'm talking about. Agreed, Sage. Although I would add David Cronenberg's 1986 picture, The Fly, as well. Good call. That is another prime example. The Invisible Man has quite a few twists and turns before the end credits. And I remember when talking with other Fright fans on the Saturday Frights Facebook page, more than a few folks, including myself, were concerned that the best moments of the movie had been shown in the trailer. Nothing could be further from the truth, however. It's a sci-fi horror picture that borders on psychological horror. Best viewed with all the lights off and after you've made sure that all the doors and windows are locked tight. Jumping to the number two spot on our list of best horror movies for 2020, well, these last two spots actually feature Shudder exclusives. While we all had to deal with unbelievable obstacles in 2020, I think it's fair to say that Shudder was firing on all cylinders. Number two on our list is Rob Savage's Host. Nothing's gonna happen. Visualize us sitting in a circle. Spirit, we invite you to use us to pass on any communication. Is there anyone there? Please come forth. What was that? Dear listeners, I was quite hesitant to view this particular picture. Although, I will admit that I was surprised and impressed by Rob Savage's picture, as was the case with the cleansing hour. The host too began as a short film. You're quite correct about its short film origins, my friend. Listeners, Savage, who by the way, has directed a handful of shorts as well as episodes of Britannia and AMC's Soulmates, conceived of host as a prank on his friends, who were all visiting on a Zoom chat when Savage remarked about the strange noises coming from his attic. He pretended to go investigate. All the while, his friends were watching. And as I understand it, he spliced the child in the attic scene from 2007's Wreck, which had the expected result of really giving his friends a jump scare. To put it mildly, <laughs> Rockford has shared with me the two minutes of video from that Zoom presentation. It is rather effective. It definitely went viral, which obviously got Savage thinking about adapting it into a feature film. It turns out it took 12 weeks to make the movie. And the thing to remember is this film and the making of it was of course during the COVID-19 quarantine. So Savage had to ask the talented actors he assembled to take care of everything on their end of the camera. I'm talking about lighting, effects, makeup, all of it. Thanks to splicing in effects scenes and special effects which had been completed earlier, with the actors watching it all themselves while also being filmed, he was able to get the actual reactions when things start to turn scary. And trust me, Host is absolutely a scary film when the ball starts rolling. 
I read in an interview with Savage and his co-writers on the film, Jed Shepard and Jimma Hurley, that they highly suggest watching the movie with headphones. I've not been able to do that myself yet, but the sound design is incredible. Plus, they point out that with the headphones on, you might be able to catch some of the Easter eggs they've placed in the movie about why these poor women are the subject of supernatural attacks. And really, of any of the movies on our top five list, Host has the simplest synopsis, not to mention the shortest running time. It clocks in at 57 minutes, I believe. But that just means it plays out like a Masters of Horror episode. Do you want to do the honors, projectionist? Absolutely, Victor. Host finds six bosom companions who are hosting a party of sorts through online means due to the pandemic of 2020. It's a Zoom gathering, projectionist. Since they can't hang out in person, they have to do so online. Zoom blast rockets Whatever you might call it, they are able to communicate on their personal computers. Thanks to tiny cameras that are installed in the infernal machines. Just let him run with it, listeners. What was that? Nothing. Please continue. You're doing a wonderful job, projectionist. <clears throat> As I was saying, these friends, Haley, Gemma, Emma, Radina... Caroline and Teddy are getting together for something special that Haley has put together. They will be hosting a seance, courtesy of a spiritual medium. Something to spice up their usual gatherings. Unfortunately, for these friends, they have managed to upset something supernatural with deadly consequences. Well done, my friend. Well, Host feels like it came out at the perfect time. What I mean is, it's a horror movie that setting is thanks to the pandemic. I do believe the reason it has blown so many people away is the very reason it will continue to be enjoyed for years to come. The synopsis, as we keep saying, might be simple, but it excels in presentation, and more importantly, in almost instantaneously liking of the characters. You'll have no issues in the least with believing these are lifelong friends. And when the spooky stuff starts to happen to them, it makes it far scarier. Keep in mind what I mentioned earlier, that the movie came together thanks to everyone pulling together, wearing many hats. By the way, besides Teddy, the one male friend in the group, who actually has to leave the Zoom conversation shortly after the seance begins, all of the lead's first names are their actual first names. Haley is played by Angel Has Fallen's Haley Bishop. Gemma is Gemma Moore, who you might have seen in Wonder Woman. Emma is portrayed by Emma Louise Webb of The Crown. Radina is Radina Drendova, who was featured in Savage's 2016 short film Dawn of the Deaf. Caroline is portrayed by Caroline Ward, who appeared in the TV series Menace. And Edward Lennard, who plays Teddy, was featured in the series The Rebels. In all honesty, I think that Host has taken the top spot on the list for many horror movies of 2020, and for good reason. It might be considered low budget, even with the effects, beyond one rather jaw-dropping instance, but Savage and his fellow filmmakers have taken all of that into account and just made it something special, something different than what the majority of horror films these days offers. I really look forward to seeing what Savage and the cast have in store for us in the near future. Projectionist, would you agree with me that if not for the next film on our list, Host would easily have won the number one spot? 
You know very well, dear boy, that I feel that Host should be the number one horror picture for 2020. Dear listeners, you might like to know that we put Host and the next film we'll be discussing to a vote with our fellow Vault staff. And it is they that decided the anthology film, The Mortuary Collection, should earn the prize. This poor soul's journey has come to an end. From dust we started, to dust we return. Every corpse tells a story. It is our task to listen. So these are all stories about how people died. Some tales even I find too unsettling to recount. She's dead! You gotta get that body out of your apartment. Keep your doors locked tonight and keep an eye out for crazies. Monsters! That's pretty cool. Yes, it is, isn't it? Well, right off the bat, I will have to admit, I am a sucker for a good horror anthology film. In the nearly decade of writing for The Retroist, and of course, now that we are nearing two years on the Pop Culture Retrorama site, I have mentioned how much I love not just horror anthologies, but horror short stories as well. Because you possess the attention span of a gnat. Very funny, projectionist. No, that is not the case at all. It is more because it's like eating at a buffet. You have many different types of stories to enjoy. The Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, Tales from the Dark Side, The Monster Club, Black Sabbath, Asylum, Dead of Night, Creep Show, Tales from the Hood, Trick or Treat, Tales of Halloween, Nightmare Cinema, and now Ryan Spindell's The Mortuary Collection are just a few of my favorite TV and movie anthologies. You might even recall that I did a non-spoiler review of The Mortuary Collection on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. If the dear listeners are as wise as I believe them to be, they skipped that so-called review. And whatever you might write on a daily basis. What I am mightily confused on is the fact that the Mortuary Collection was released in 2019. So I say it should not be a contender for the number one horror movie spot for 2020. We've already been over this with the cleansing hour. The Mortuary Collection was screened at the Fantastic Fest on September 21st of 2019. It didn't receive a wider release until it premiered on Shudder on October 15th of 2020. Not only is this another top pick that debuted on Shudder, but this makes the third film that actually got its start as a short film. Or, in this case, perhaps we should say as a proof of concept. With Ryan Spindell's The Babysitter Murders, which was released in either 2015 or 2017. The Babysitter Murders? Was that not the original title for 1978's Halloween? It was indeed projectionist, which should tell you how much of a fan Spindell is of the horror genre. As a matter of fact, The Babysitter Murders short is included in the Mortuary Collection. This is just an amazingly fun horror anthology picture, with an overwhelming abundance of atmosphere, thanks to the setting of the interstitials, as well as the likes of Clancy Brown bringing the thunder as Montgomery Dark, the undertaker for the strange little seaside town of Raven's End. 
a pastime, it would seem, for Montgomery Dark is cataloging the life and events of those who were placed into his trust, preparing them for their final journey. Raven's End has many dark secrets, it would seem, enough to fill a vast library, as is hinted at in the film's trailer. Friends, Ryan Spindell has delivered something fantastic, and one can only hope that the world-building he has done with the Mortuary Collection might mean we're due for a return visit. As my co-host just pointed out, there are many, many volumes in Montgomery's library. And I, for one, am more than ready to hear more tales of monsters, supernatural comeuppances, dangers of crazed slashers, and perhaps even the possibility of Lovecraft's The Old Ones, or something like it. The Mortuary Collection, right from the start of the film, with Clancy Brown's narration, tells you what kind of place Raven's End is. And if you pay close attention to those opening scenes, there are so many tantalizing hints in not just future stories, but also a tale with characters that run through the film itself. I've watched the movie easily five or six times already, and I keep finding new things that I previously missed. You might be interested to know that Ryan Spindell, who not only directed but wrote the Mortuary Collection, with the initial screenplay as I understand it being done all the way back in 2012, but he also made the film over a span of a couple of years. Another fun fact is that the Raven's End Mortuary, which the character of Montgomery Dark also calls home, is the Flavel House Museum in Astoria, Oregon. At least, the exterior is, as well as some of the town. I bring all of this up because this is the same place where The Goonies was filmed. Thank goodness for those little ragamuffins that they did not venture into the Ravenson Mortuary. The 1985 picture would surely have had a very different ending. Well, the framing story for the anthology film mainly focuses on two characters, Dark and a young woman named Sam, played by Caitlin Custer of MTV's Teen Wolf. Anyway, while passing by the mortuary, she notices a Help Wanted sign hanging outside. And how curious is it that Montgomery Dark is taken aback by this news? Yes? Oh yeah, it's plain to see that he didn't realize there was a sign out there. Which should help to illustrate my point about the strangeness of Raven's Inn. I mean, Montgomery didn't want to hire someone, but apparently the mortuary felt he needed an assistant. And that is what Sam is there for, to become an apprentice and go into the mortuary business. She's quite impressed by the amount of books in Dark's office, which he offhandedly remarks is just the tip of a lumbering iceberg, explaining that these books, or ledgers, are the records of those who have come to him, to be prepared for burial or cremation. Remember, dear boy, that Montgomery Dark makes a point to mention these records he keeps, or also to explain why the person has died, as if there is a moral to each of the stories he has pinned for the deceased. You aren't wrong, my friend. Sam challenges Dark to impress her with just one of the stories. And I think we need to add that the iconic Clancy Brown and Custer have a great chemistry together. They play off each other exceedingly well. In particular, dear listeners, when Montgomery Dart tries to impress her with the tale of a young woman who, while attending a dinner party, locks herself in a bathroom 
and comes across a locked medicine cabinet. And you have no doubt heard what happened to the cat that became too curious, eh? You're getting into spoilers again, Projectionist. This is the perfect time to share that the stories are all from different eras in the history of Raven's End. This first story that Dark tells appears to be set in the 1950s. The second concerns a fraternity in the 60s, with the third segment revolving around a couple in love in the 70s. And both the fourth story, as well as the interstitials, taking place in the 80s, which feels extremely appropriate. I will add that Sam is less than impressed with Dark's first story, which is the reason he continues to share others. I think not just to try and actually impress her, but it gives them something to discuss while they are taking a tour of the mortuary. Which is not only beautiful and dripping with Victorian charm, but I would love to call the Raven's End Mortuary home. Actually, while watching the Mortuary Collection, I remarked to others how creepily Clancy Brown's character acted like you, man. Interestingly enough, the quickness of the first story brings up a fun fact. Spindell, in interviews, has made mention that, as originally scripted, that segment was going to be all about a telemarketer, whose boorish behavior would have also been a link to various characters in the movie. It turns out the producers of the film, though, thought it would end up being too costly, so they asked him to rewrite that portion of the screenplay. Does that mean the original script did not focus on different eras then? I assume that's the case, my friend. So, perhaps in the end, it helped to make the Mortuary Collection a better movie. I mentioned this in that non-spoiler review, but Clancy Brown appears to be channeling a little of the late and great Angus Scrim, aka the tall man from the Phantasm series. You can definitely tell he's enjoying the part, even chewing the scenery a little in some cases. While I guess your enjoyment of the film will depend on how much you like anthology pictures, I have to add, I feel that every single one of the cast members delivers a very solid performance. While every segment is obviously horror-based, they can range from darkly funny to deeply tragic, and sometimes all in the same story. Another amazing element of the Mortuary Collection happens to be the music, provided by a band known as Mondo Boys who not only provided the score for the film, but multiple songs for scenes and background music on radios, etc. These all seem appropriate for the era that the stories take place. I have a clip here entitled Raven's End, what we hear when we get our first look at the little town. It's an absolute shame that as far as I can tell, the Mortuary Collection soundtrack has not been released. Although, you can listen to it all but one song on the Mondo Boys site. I'll include the link in the article for this episode. The Mortuary Collection really was a Halloween gift from Shudder, and with all the craziness, as we've said before, of 2020, it was most definitely welcome. Especially since, thanks to the pandemic, it managed to mess up the production on the second season of Shudder's Creepshow series. But at least we managed to get some specials there to hold us over until April 1st, when it will finally debut. 
I think that the Mortuary Collection will be just like Host. It's going to keep entertaining people as the years go by. As I understand it, it's being released on Blu-ray next month on April 20th. I've seen it on the Target website, and while I can't find all of the details, there's a large sticker promising over two hours of special features. That will most definitely go into my collection. Perhaps it is time for us to share our picks. The films that managed to be quite entertaining, but didn't make our list of top five, eh? Go for a projectionist. My top three are Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, Severin Fiala, and Veronica Franz's The Lodge. And last but not least is Oz Perkins' Gretel and Hansel. Ooh, very solid choices. I too had Cronenberg's Possessor on my list, so instead I will swap in Remy Weeks, hope I'm not butchering his last name, His House. A little like with The Invisible Man, the supernatural aspects of His House is a stand-in for a very real-life horror. The second on my list is Josh Rubin's Scare Me, which is another Shudder exclusive actually. A horror comedy that is captivating thanks to its two leads, Rubin and the boys Aya Cash who are just telling each other scary and often funny horror stories. And, I'm sorry friends, Shudder really delivered in 2020. My third pick is Justin G. Dyke's Anything for Jackson, which is a darkly funny film that focuses on a reversed exorcism by an elderly couple that still delivers some frights. And friends, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, as always, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. And especially thank you for sticking with us, considering how late this episode is. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. My co-host, The Projectionist, has his own Facebook page, Projectionist Haunted Drive-In. He manages to share interesting trivia on films on a daily basis, or sometimes just vintage movie posters and behind-the-scene photographs of some of your favorite films. I want to thank Rockford J for putting up with the abuse of the projectionist on a nearly daily basis. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page, and of course the Pop Culture Retrorama site too. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account by the way, if you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. For all things pop culture and retro related, feel free to visit us at the Pop Culture Retrorama site. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the retroist himself. Not just for originally hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Our past catalog of episodes are slowly coming back online, but you can still listen to the entire collection over on the Internet Archive. We are also available on Google Podcasts and Spotify as well as Stitcher. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses or individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. <laughs>